1: Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. I posted on the YouTube community tab about 24 hours ago, and your comments this week were fire, so I can't wait to get into them. Uh, I will say a couple things. One, I am in a particularly good mood tonight as I am recording this. Um, Hopefully that will continue as... I move through the next 45 minutes of answering these questions. Uh, that is because I'm about to go on a trip with some, with some friends. So I will be away from the studio. I will be watching not as much tennis as usual over the course of the next four days. Uh, I'm going to have a special interview that I will post on Sunday. And then I will get to the City Open final. But content for that is going to be coming out late, probably Tuesday. All right? Want to get that out of the way. And with that, let us go. To our first comment from Matthew. Hey Gil, the U.S. Open has been the most unpredictable tournament in terms of determining the winner over the 10 plus years. Over the last 10 plus years, I think that was meant to say. However, Federer was able to win five in a row, 2004 to 2008, before losing in the final in 2009. Why was Federer able to achieve such dominance at this tournament? And why has no one since then been able to dominate the tournament like the other three majors? Always glad to hear your thoughts. I I mean, I wouldn't overcomplicate this question. Why was Federer able to kind of dominate the US Open at that time? It's because he he was quite dominant at the other three slams as well. If you're gonna take the, the period between Uh, 2004 and 2008 in particular, I think the U.S. Open has been the major of opportunity for folks outside of the Big Four for the last 10 years because of its spot on the calendar. And I think there's just been more wear and tear, more injuries, more fatigue, you know, stuff that has just kind of leveled the playing field, not to mention some funky stuff. As it pertains to COVID and one of the more freak incidents that we will see in this century, which is the Novak Djokovic DQ. Uh, But I I was just curious to see, you know, the Federer-Australian opens from 2004 through 2008. I mean, he won three of them and lost in the semis twice. So, like, it's not as if in that five-year stretch at the other hardcourt major, it, it wasn't kind of a similar thing. Then you look at Wimbledon. He won four and then made the final in 2008, of course, lost to Rafa. So yeah, it was just, I think, Roger's competition at that time. But I will say on the, on the topic of kind of taking care of your body and withstanding the wear and tear of the tour, few, few, if any, were better than Federer at just kind of withstanding the rigors of the tour mentally. I don't want to just make it a physical thing. It's also mental, right? Mentally and physically, Roger, for most of his 20s, was just no injuries, always feeling great, always feeling happy. like It was just kind of smooth sailing at the time. So I would say that uh, that definitely helped him perform in New York. Hey, he should have won in 2009, too. I mean, in hindsight, I'm really glad Delpo won that match because – he deserved one, but Roger shouldn't have lost that match. Next one is from Isla Carson. Isla Carson. Isla Carson. Do you think Medvedev can beat Alcaraz on a faster hard court, or do you think it's just a terrible matchup no matter what surface? I pretty much feel like it's just a terrible matchup. I mean, there aren't going to be a lot of surfaces that, that are drastically faster than Wimbledon. Now I would would say Wimbledon is only slightly above average in speed, in fact, maybe it's even average. So by no means is it like a lightning quick court like it was up until, what, 2002. But I think the the whole court position thing that, that we're seeing when they play, I don't think a fast court is necessarily going to remedy that, especially given how well Alcaraz started handling the big servers over the course of, of Wimbledon, which was, again, one of my big takeaways from his title run. That is to say that, you know, with Daniil versus Carlitos, I guess one of the things that I would think if they were to play on a on a really, really quick court is maybe before I saw Wimbledon was, oh, Medvedev can get a lot of free points, and Alcaraz won't get a lot. And that could really put a lot of pressure on Carlitos to dominate the baseline rallies, which is really hard to do against Daniil. So that is how I would kind of create the path for victory on Medvedev. Obviously, the quicker the court, the more likely it is that that would happen. But with the way Alcaraz was returning at Wimbledon, he might be in that kind of big four uh level of returning where you're not really just going to win a lot of matches by getting free points. Like, you're going to have to follow up your serve with something. And, yeah, I I don't know that the just crushing in the returns in play dynamic is ever going to be in the cards for Medvedev. If they play in Turin, which, I, I mean, chances are we will see that. Just given the format... We're going to see that at some point, that's the quickest court on tour, unless they change it from what it was last year. That is the quickest court on the circuit, bar none, no hesitation. So let's see what happens. I think they'll, they'll probably play there at some point. Next one is from Brian. Hi Gil, this might be a little difficult, but how would you rank the top 10 players on the ATP by strength of forehand? Okay. Don't mind if I do. Somebody asked me this about slice a couple weeks back. And now we're going to do the forehands. Again, I have not thought about this before. I'm doing this on the fly. Number one. I am going to give it. And and this is hard. Because you just have a lot of exceptional forehands here. With backhand slice, it was the opposite. Um. It's really tough. It's very, very tough, guys. I am going to give it right now to Alcaraz, which I wouldn't have done. Maybe a month ago, I wouldn't have done that um, because my perspective would have been, look, if this is a side that can be rushed, if it's a side that can be erratic, I don't really care how big he can hit it. Like I get that it's bigger than everybody else's, but I don't really care if it's going to be a weakness in certain aspects of the game. I'm even talking about defense. I'm talking about return. Uh, but I think at this point, those things are are performing at a high enough le- enough level uh, to call Alcaraz's fo- to put Alcaraz's forehand at number one. Uh, at number two, um, I will give it to Titi I think when it's when it's firing, it's just uh, really a force to be reckoned with. Number three, I think Djokovic. Uh, Novak is, you know, in some ways his forehand is better than Alcaraz and Tsitsipas. So he's really in that conversation. I know that it's not the weapon that some of these other forehands are. There's even going to be players lower on this list that I think have more damaging forehands the Novak but again like you consistency should matter depth should matter stability should matter return on it should matter uh and I'm I'm taking all these things into account okay so that's 3 uh number 4 I'll go I'm going to go rude I mean it's a rude's forehand is a especially on clay court it's a it's a brilliant, brilliant clay court weapon. And then on the other surfaces, uh, it's still good. It's not as good, but it's still good. And if you look at the success that Kasparud has had in his career um, and the other skill sets that that he possesses, you, you have to give so much credit to his forehand for everything he's done because, look, uh, he's above average at a lot of other things, okay? He's a above-average mover. He's... Uh, an above average server for sure. But at the end of the day, there's only one thing he does at an elite level and it's his forehand. And he's really leaned on that and route to being a top five player. So that should count for a lot. At number five, I'm going to go with, uh, it's between two guys. I'm going to go with Sinner. And then at number six, I'll go Rublev, which is pretty unbelievable. I mean, at the end of the day, the fact that Rublev comes in at number six on this list is a joke. And it just goes to show you how important forehands are. Good players, let me change the adjective here. Elite players have elite forehands. And it's rare when that is not the case. Okay. Okay. We're still not going to really experience much of a drop-off here. At 7, I will go with... I'm going to go with Medvedev. I'm going to go with Medvedev over... It's tough because, again, now I'm really looking at consistency with Daniil because there's a guy... The guys below him actually still hit the forehand bigger. But I'm going to go Medvedev 7. He doesn't really miss it. When he's on, when he's playing well, it's deep. You know, it's precise enough. So, I again, let's not just ignore consistency and pretend that that doesn't matter. It matters. At eight, I'll go Taylor Fritz. Again, it's an amazing forehand. Really, it feels insane to put him so low. At number nine. Obviously there's only two guys left. I'm gonna give Runa number nine and Tiafo ten. Two forehands that can be just a little bit they're not even they're not even bad, but they're a little bit more enigmatic, a little bit more temperamental, and they have more kind of holes to poke in them. Okay. I wonder how much disagreement that list is gonna spark. Uh, Probably a lot. The fact is, there's not a lot of wiggle room or distance between a lot of those placements. So, in that sense, I don't even think it's really worth arguing about, but, you know, fun enough exercise. Here's a tough one. From either Andrea or Andrea, Gabriella. At what Grand Slam do you think Rublev has his best chance to get past the quarterfinals? Rublev is a guy who I've never really thought that much about surfaces with. So let's go ahead and just do a little comparison of his results across the slams. And then we can kind of see if any sort of pattern has emerged. And the answer is really no, which is kind of what I expected before I kind of looked at the stats. So I'll just read off his win percentages, 70% at the Australian Open, 67% at the French Open, 69% at Wimbledon, and 71% at the US Open. So that's all within four percentage points of each other. He has made three quarterfinals at the U.S. Open, and that is his most, but that's kind of because he had that outlier quarterfinal in 2017, which even dates, it even predates that really bad back injury that kind of stunted his early, you know, very, very early growth in his career. Uh, There was just that kind of blip, 2017 U.S. Open quarterfinal, and he didn't really
0: Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the
1: ones who get it done. Um you know, I, I think with the way the US Open has played out, however, with the pattern that we've seen emerged, as it's clearly been uh the major that has um presented the most opportunity for um just kind of different results to be sprinkled in. Not that Rublev making a major semifinal would be any kind of shock. Uh, But I I would lean to the U.S. Open. But the the reality is there's no great answer to this question. From James Harris. Going forward, where do you think Djokovic is going to find his motivation to keep winning? Now his closest rivals have retired or are nearing the end. Will he be able to keep digging deep to rack up more grand slams? Can he see Alcaraz as his main rival, bearing in mind the huge age difference? So I've said a lot about Novak and motivation, not just after Wimbledon, but really dating back the last couple years. And some people have not taken all so well to the things I've had to say uh, on that topic, insisting that motivation could never ever be an issue for Novak, no matter what. And he's—I don't know exactly what it is, but you know, basically that I have no basis to think that motivation could be an issue. I think those people kind of misunderstand where I'm coming from. The, the, the place I'm coming from when I talk about Novak uh, motivation potentially being an obstacle is not that there's anything about Djokovic in particular that may be more prone to losing motivation other than his kind of career arc of constantly having two titans that he's chasing and trying to overtake and suddenly that not being the case anymore. Right. Other than that, but beyond that, it's it's mainly just a statement on his body not declining. Like You got to understand that when it comes to longevity of players, when it comes to when they're going to retire, when it comes to when they're going to stop winning at the level that maybe we're used to seeing them win, this conversation is almost always about one thing, and that is staying healthy. That is about preserving the body. The only reason motivation is is has come into play so often in this conversation as it pertains to Novak is because the body seems fine. So when I'm saying let's not get ahead of ourselves with Djokovic when people say, Gil, can he win 30 slams? Because that's always my my uh response. Like I'm always like, maybe, but is he actually gonna want to? Is he gonna go out there and actually be able to attack that with with vigor and, and sacrifice and full out dedication? Like does he want to do that? Um that's always been my question. The only reason that's the question and not the mm, is he gonna like is he gonna be healthy enough to do that? That for all the other players that would be the question. I'd be doing the math. I'd be going, whoa, 36, 37, 38. I mean, how do we know physically any player can can keep going like that? You see what I'm saying? Anyway, that is why I reached the conclusion uh, after the Wimbledon match, which is a subjective conclusion, which is something that we'll never be able to prove. We'll never know if I'm right or if I'm wrong. But that is why I said that The silver lining to Novak losing to Alcaraz is that he will be really excited at the prospect of trying to reverse that result and competing with Carlitos, who is a very, very worthy rival, which he just proved. So um, yeah, right now I'm not all that concerned about Novak's motivation, but if he won the calendar slam, I think Steve Flink put it very, very eloquently, it would have been unbelievably satisfying for him. And from a motivational standpoint, it would have been dangerously satisfying. I know Novak is, look, everybody is their own individual case mentally, but we have seen players have that pinnacle moment Maybe not to that extent, but it can be hard to do something that amazing and then go into the off season, put in the exact same work, have the same exact hunger and thirst after reaching that kind of summit, right? Next one's from Roberto. Hi, Gil. Thanks for the great content. Thank you. Do you think it's realistic for the ATP and WTA to adopt a more scientific ranking system such as ELO ratings or some version of it? I think it would be a much better system than the current one, even more so if it includes surface adjustments. Example, a top seed wouldn't end up facing someone like Manorino in the first round of a grass tournament, maybe. I guess one of the main issues, besides general resistance to change, would be that there is no full consensus among analysts on the details of the formula to be used. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, this is a fantastic uh, comment. I love that you're thinking this way. But I I would say, I don't know that we want a system like that. I, I really don't. Now, while Elo might be a tool that allows us to have a more accurate idea of how good, let's say, grass court players really are, like I would imagine Manorino's grass Elo is would give him a more accurate Wimbledon seating than his ranking. There's no doubt about that. But I, I, I think we want complete and pure uncontaminated objectivity in the rankings. And that's very unique to tennis. Very unique. Uh, But like, in a team sport, let's say, going into, let's say, the, the playoffs, right? Strength of schedule could be super easy for the number one seed. In the tournament and strength of schedule could be much, uh, easier for the number five seed. I don't think we want to, and there are metrics that are available for you to read. If you follow any other sports where you can just adjust the team's record to try to account for strength of schedule. I don't think we actually want to use those kinds of things to adjust the seedings, uh, Whenever we can have objectivity and kind of a results-based outcome in sports, uh, I I think we actually want that. And then we can just use our brains to use things like ELO ratings uh, to make us smarter, to kind of see through the the weaknesses of the ATP rankings and the WTA rankings, because there are weaknesses. I don't know. To me— to me, all of those weaknesses are much better than having a, uh, a system that isn't just like fully, purely objective. From Sharon. Hi Gil, what do you think is the most likely fourth seed at the US Open? Right now, it feels like a complete toss-up between Rude, Tsitsipas, Runa, and Rublev. All of them have the potential To do well in Canada and Cincy. Do you think a certain one of them being the fourth seed would be more interesting for the draw? Thank you as always. Thank you. It's going to be interesting, huh? It's going to be very, very interesting. They are so close in the rankings. Uh, Rude is 4,985. pass 4,850. Runa, 4,825. Rublev, 4,730. Then there's a, a drop off before center at eight in the world. So that is is it less than two hundred points? Seven, eight, nine. No, but it's it's less than it's less than four four hundred points between the seven seed and the four seed. So yeah, it's pretty close. Any of those guys can do it. I don't have a, a super strong opinion on who is going to finish the number four seed. I, I suppose if you're thinking about... So defending points is relevant here. Very relevant. Um, I almost want to look... I would almost want to look more carefully. I know Pass made the final in Cincinnati, lost to Chorich. But I would almost want to look more carefully at what these guys did to kind of get a better idea of what's possible, how many points to gain. Now, I know for Runa, I know he was on he was on the struggle bus at this time last year. So I think Holger has a really good chance to do it. I just, I don't remember how Rublev did. And I don't, I just don't want to take the time right now in the mailbag to look into it. Uh, but, you know, Good comment, worth mentioning. How interesting that's going to be. How close that's going to be. You also ask here: uh, Do you think a certain one of them being in the fourth seed would be more interesting for the draw? And to that, I would say, well, for Rublev, it would be interesting because he would he would avoid uh, Djokovic and Medvedev and and Alcaraz. Okay, so. You want to avoid those three, and then it would be okay. Rublev has a chance to get to that semi that the other commenter earlier in the mailbag asked about. So that would be that would be a storyline, huh? Runa would also be very interesting, just because I think I think he is seen as quite dangerous, not not necessarily as consistent. Or as much of a a shoe in, um, and then obviously Rude making the final last year. The stakes are pretty high for him when it comes to defending points at the U.S. Open. So uh, it feels like a getting that four C would be pretty pretty big for him in terms of importance. So all right, this one from Paul Rubenstein, who is a member. Uh, appreciate that. You can. Become a member by hitting the join button. It is a $2 contribution to the channel every month to support the channel and it is appreciated, but you are not obligated to do it. I do try to get the members more involved in the mailbag as much as I can. A bit of a subjective question, which shot in tennis do you find most aesthetically pleasing? It doesn't necessarily have to be the most effective shot. Although the two things can often go hand in hand for me. Federer's backhand slice, ridiculously effortless. Djokovic's open stance sliding backhand, impossible balance slash stability. Sinner's forehand, less obvious, but I could watch it all day. It's something about how loose and whip-like his arm is. It is very whip-like. Uh, first of all, those are great choices. I, I don't know that I fully agree with you on Sinner's forehand just because I don't know that the way he moves around the court, like his, his posture and his footwork I don't think it just lends itself to the most aesthetically pleasing ground game, Uh, but I totally know what you're saying about how satisfying his kind of loose kind of slingshot arm action is. I totally get that. I would say aesthetically pleasing shots. Shout out to David Gaffan's backhand down the line. I think as far as two-handers go, it's just a thing of beauty aesthetically. And he's also a very, very smooth mover. So I think everything from, you know, the way he moves to his left and the preparation and then the the technique uh, all the way through, I think is uh, just really, really pure to watch. I've been uh, enjoying watching Ben Shelton hit kick serves. I know that's kind of a, a less obvious one, but I just think the the violence of that motion but also the efficiency and how how well he gets the big muscles involved you know when it comes to the 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 shoulder tilt and the way the hips and the legs kind of all coil and uncoil i've been really enjoying that i never do this but i went back in post production to record another part of this answer del potro's forehand the take back terrifying the way he comes through the ball so flat and the sound that it made. Yeah, I could watch it all day. We go to the next question from JD Freeman. Hi Gil, love the show. Thank you for providing the best tennis content on the internet. Appreciate the compliment. My wife and I will be attending the US Open this year, which will be our first time attending a slam. What is your advice on making the most of our experience? Have any specific tips regarding stadiums, food, watching practices, etc.? Thanks again. And then I uh, appreciate what you say here on the bottom as well. So here's my U.S. Open advice. First of all, I don't know if you're coming from out of town. I'm assuming if you're a huge tennis fan and you've never been before, you probably are traveling to New York in order to go uh, for the event but if you are going to be in new york early i would i would check out qualis i would go to qualis it's free and if you want to kind of take in the experience of watching practice especially uh, qualis is is the best time to do it you're not missing you know real live tennis so there's not you're not as as torn i would say when you're watching practice i'd say the players are are usually almost always practicing harder, like they're playing practice sets and they're a little bit more engaged than what they'll be doing during the tournament. And, uh, when you go to watch, you know, the tail end of qualies, I think the intensity is unbelievable. I mean, it means so much to these guys to qualify, uh, for majors. Um, What else? Stadiums. I love Armstrong. I think it's tremendous. Uh, it is the coolest court at the U.S. Open. If it's a particularly hot day, if you're struggling with the sun, it's the best court to be on. It is uh, It is kind of naturally shaded. You still feel like you're outside, but it is uh, significantly cooler. It's got a good atmosphere as well. Uh, food, you know, just whatever you like, get that. And I know that sounds like the most obvious advice ever. Take take a risk on the food if it's something that you think you're going to enjoy. If it's something that you're in the mood for. Uh, if you know when you go to a baseball game or something or a football game, like a lot of American sports venues, and this has maybe changed a little bit. There's a lot of kind of subpar food for too much money. I think the. US open, not all of it, but a lot of it really is quite good. Uh, when I'm there, I'm super super lucky to get a good amount of money just to use every day uh, as a as a broadcaster there. but like my go-to I feel I, I don't really feel like recommending this. it is pricey. but like just to give you an example. I eat a lot of lobster rolls at the U.S. Open every year because I think they're fire. And that's the kind of thing I would never get at a baseball game. I would never, ever get a lobster roll at a baseball game. Uh, But yeah, the U.S. Open does a great job with their food. Far better than Roland Garros. I can tell you that much. Better than Wimbledon, although Wimbledon's also better than RG. That's all I got. And if you see me around, say hi. From Alex, do you think Zverev could get back to the top of men's tennis? What are his chances of winning a slam at this point of his career? I have considered this question for a lot of years now. Obviously, it's been been one of the longest-standing questions in men's tennis, to be completely frank. And I think I've always been, compared to a lot of other people, much more towards the no side of this question. For the longest time, I've said... Who's the last guy who's won a major, who doesn't have a reliable second serve and forehand. Obviously this injury has made everything harder, but I don't think there is any guarantee that he's going to get one. And what kills me is, I mean, it doesn't kill me. Look, I don't really actually care, but where what, what I find interesting is like after he, he wins Hamburg last week and looked so, so, so good. I know. He looked incredible. I, I, I agree. But you read comments and it's like, wow, Zverev's going to win a slam if he plays like that. How, how many years are we going to do this for? We know he can look unbelievable in that kind of circumstance. We know that he can do that. But is he going to come up in a major semifinal, in a major final against an elite player and win the damn match? Because that's what it's going to come down to. And it does not matter how good you look winning Hamburg, It just doesn't matter. And I could get for a player who's young and new and fresh to kind of look at, at a run like that and be like, wow, he looks unbelievable. I, I think that's going to translate to winning majors. But at this point, like how many times does Zverev need to show us that one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two in this case? The It doesn't add up. So For me at this point, Zverev is a no, 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 yes guy. It's a I'll believe it when I see it guy. And that doesn't mean that I don't think he can win a major. He obviously can. Obviously has the ability to do it. Obviously has the level to do it. And I'll never, ever count out a player who has the level and the ability and the talent to do it. When it's just down to kind of... Relaxing, figuring out the right mental components, getting in the right state of mind, having confidence in playing a certain brand of tennis under pressure, not allowing the weaknesses to blossom. I'll never count out a player like that, but I'm more towards no than yes. This one is from Jot. Hey Gil, can't wait for another mail back. Well, it's your lucky day. Here I am. I wanted to ask you what you think the ceiling is for Chris Eubanks. He's always had big weapons with the serve and the forehand, plus pretty good around the front court, but now he has broken through with his improved consistency. He's had a great July on grass and seems like he's coming in hot for the summer hard courts. How high do you think he can go? It's kind of tough to figure out with Eubanks because there's not a lot of good comparisons for him. I can't say, like, oh, Chris reminds me of player X and player X did this. So I think Eubanks will do a similar thing. Like, I really struggle to compare anybody to Chris Eubanks in terms of kind of skill set, what he does on the court, all that. Uh, so. I'll break it down like this. You're right. The weapons, the offense, total package, serve, ground strokes, four-court game, transition game, net play. You put together all of those things. You have an offensive package that is pretty much as good as it gets or can be at its best as good as it gets. Certainly top 10. Defensively, he'll never be there, right? He'll never be there defensively. I don't think there's anything he can do. So he's never going to be like a, a two-way player, which is really what you need to be elite elite. You got to be great defensively, great offensively. He can be great at one, not so much the other. I think generally those players can, they I think they can be top 10 but I feel like normally they max out around like eight in the world. That's not a prediction for Eubanks. I haven't seen enough to predict that he's going to get there. But if you're going to say, well, you said, what, what's the ceiling? That's my answer. About eight in the world, I think would be Eubanks' ceiling. Which, by the way, I, I don't think he'd be insulted by that. I think he'd be pretty happy with that. Next one's from Bard. Hi Gil, new subscriber. Loving the content. Depressed Draper fan here, awaiting his return in the Winnipeg Challenger the week after next. It feels like if he could resolve the physical problems, a big if. He has the game to really challenge the top. What do you think his main strengths and weaknesses are? I would encourage you to just Google search my name, Jack Draper, and then you'll you'll find my my match analysis of him. I think I've covered a couple of his matches where I get into this in depth. So, uh, yeah, do, do that. But I think... In simple terms, um, his strengths are his well-roundedness. He's good at pretty much everything, you know, in every area. Uh, Forehand, backhand, great volleys, really good serve, uh, good movement as well. His his weakness is, oh, I want to mention his consistency. Excellent baseline consistency, consistency off the ground. Weakness would be the firepower off the ground. Uh, the biggest thing that I want to see him work on outside of the durability is uh, just flattening out the forehand, upping the ground stroke speed. When, when it's time to do damage with the forehand from the middle of the court, you're going to you're gonna have to flatten out and up the miles per hour. I think that's what really what he needs to work on mainly. From Zeta Cheese, Shelton and Corda both crashed out of the Washington Open. Are there any glaring issues you see with them? And are you optimistic of their future? I mentioned both of them. I think, no, I mentioned Shelton last week. And the the answer is, look, I think he's playing bad tennis right now. Anybody can see that. He's not good right now. But no, I'm not worried about the future with Shelton at all. I look at the tools that he has. He's going to figure it out. He's way too athletic. The weapons are way too big for him not to be a really, really great player. Uh, So I want to kind of push that aside. Uh, For Corda, I'm just, look, again, it's been a weird year. Small sample size, really high highs, really low lows bad draw at wimbledon you know a lot of people wanted me to comment on him getting upset against vesely and i wasn't trying to avoid it at all it just never really came up in just the the scheduling and you know just my coverage i I never really got to it uh look vesely as i said in the preview nightmare first round he destroys seeds at wimbledon he's never seeded himself in that respect it's tough but what happened in that match to Corda is what happens to Corda, which is that under pressure, he sprays on his forehand badly. And that is a big problem. He's going to need to figure that out. One more. One, one more. Uh, someone asked about Popper and it has nine likes about what he's going to do the rest of the season. Check out Monday Match Analysis. I covered that last week. Okay, let's end on a somewhat long one about analytics. From Adrian. I'm a football slash soccer fan. And most of what I enjoy reading about the sport involves explaining advanced metrics and using them to evaluate players, teams, and even coaches' strengths, skills, and styles. A couple of questions in with regards to data and tennis. Do you think a tennis analytics boom, caveats relatively speaking and in the public sphere, is possible within the next three to five years? What barriers, apart from the lack of match stats being made public, do you think exists Uh, between tennis even starting to resemble basketball or baseball with their advanced stats? And do you think the community exists for such a boom to happen? And finally, if that does happen, uh, would you see this as a net positive for the game overall? Too many questions for me to actually answer here. But the problem with tennis analytics right now, first of all, the boom is happening. It's happening. But it's happening behind closed doors. There are a lot of really awesome things that are being worked on. Some of them we're kind of seeing, we're getting a taste of it uh, when it comes to, you know, tennis viz and some of the stats that you've been seeing on the world feed. And uh, Wimbledon also kind of hired them to do some analytical things. Uh, But it, it pales in comparison to what's available in soccer and in baseball. And that is mostly because all of these things are being gatekept. The data and the tracking itself are being gatekept. Because the entities who are tracking these things are getting paid a lot of money, a lot of money by other entities in order to use their data. And if they say, here's what we're tracking, here's the raw metrics and everybody can play with them and use them however they want, uh, they, that, that business model is obsolete. So because of money and capitalism, the fans are getting cheated out of all of the analytics that are actually in the world, available, being compiled, being tracked. We just don't get to see them. We just don't get to see them. With that being said, there are things about tennis that don't lend itself to the need for analytics when it comes to a fan culture as much as the other sports. Uh, Earlier in the video, I talked about how we do like our objectivity Objectivity in tennis, especially. We have a ranking system that's 52 weeks, and whatever it is, it is. Tennis is a results-based sport where we don't really need advanced analytics to hold our hand and tell us who the best players are. We don't need that. In team sports, we need that. We need that. We need to know if the left back on the worst team in the Premier League, the team that can't even win a game, is actually just as good as as uh, Manchester City's left back who is getting all of the glory and all the shine, Sorry if this is a bad analogy. I mean, I'm not the best with this stuff, with with the soccer and stuff. But uh, it was getting all of the publicity and all of the shine and all of the hype. Uh, But remember, it's a team sport. So your teammates matter. And as a result, like these advanced analytics can help us overcome the pitfalls and the weaknesses of our human brains that have trouble accepting and, and seeing through certain things in team sports because the, the water is muddied a little bit more than in tennis. We don't really want those things as much because we know what the results are. The results are the results. So there is a little bit of a difference there. A little bit. With the, At the same time, at the end of the day, I dream of a world in which we can utilize analytics better. We can engage fans with analytics. I would be first in line trying to do that, trying to get ahead of that if I were able to. And I'm somewhat able to, but really, really I'm not. I know people who can get me numbers, but that's very, very different from having the numbers available um, to be used, As I, as I wish, as I please. Um, so overall, I think it's a a lost opportunity, a lost opportunity for, for tennis, which I, I don't see changing anytime in the near future because these, these business models are, are very solid, solidly in place. All right. That's my answer on that. Maybe at some point it'll change but i don't think i don't think we're all that close to that happening but who knows right okay um i mentioned all the housekeeping stuff at the top of the show so i won't repeat that uh but i will talk to you early next week hope you enjoyed don't forget to subscribe i'll see you next time
0: for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early